me in turning to the New Testament Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and we're a few weeks now into our study in the Gospel of Mark. I remember the church I was raised in had a study through the Gospel of John, and it was a long, long study. It lasted years. People would ask others, when did you come to the church? They would answer, I came in John chapter 2, I came in John chapter 7, you know. It just was a long study, and I don't know how long we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, but we're going to do our best to work diligently to learn what it is the Lord has for us in this text. I believe it's a worthwhile study. It'll be a very helpful study. And uh, this much I know, I don't view myself as a performer and you as the audience. I'm not here today to gain your approval, just like you're not here to get mine. None of us are judges today. But, but I do know this. God is looking in, and He is the judge, and we ought to seek for His approval and my prayer for this time together is that as the Lord looks in, He'd be pleased with what He sees happening here. That He would appreciate the effort and, and uh, the, the, the study that went into the sermon. But I also hope that He'll find us working together as, as uh, we're trying to learn and grow from the Word of God. And uh, I'll tell you right up front, we're still foundational part of this series, still putting some of the pieces together that will serve as the foundation. And the study today is going to require a little bit of work by both of us. And uh, so I hope you came to church uh, ready. Now, you, you don't have to. You're not obligated to that. But if you hope to get something out of our study today, we're going to have to really work together. And uh, it, it's going to be worth it, I do believe. It was one of those cloudy mornings for which coastal towns like Oceanside are well known. And it was a day where the sun was shining, but not yet quite breaking through the haze. And people gathered on our parking lot here for the first ever workday that our church had. And I remember as people arrived on that day, they began to gather. And I began to give assignments and kind of give direction. Can you go do this and work here? And, and uh, we had a family that had just been attending our church for a very, very short time arrived. And, and uh, I was glad to see them there. And I'll never forget what Bill said when he walked up to me. He said, Pastor, what's the hardest job that you need to get done today? Well, if you're around at that time, it was just one of those bizarre years where we had weeds like no other time, and our hillsides were literally covered with weeds, taller than the average person. It was a horrible job. And, and I said, well, Bill, we were kind of hoping to get some of the weeds off the hillside. He said, if you need me, I'll be on the hillside. He obviously came with a heart to serve. He was eager to work. He worked harder than you would ever expect a volunteer to work. He just went after it. And what made that event even more remarkable to some in our church was the fact that, that this man was a major general in the Marine Corps. He was the commanding general of, of Camp Pendleton. And I understand that intrinsically, none of us are of a greater value than any other person, but we live in a culture that kind of assumes or associates that if you have a leadership role or a leadership position, then people serve you, you don't serve them. And it was refreshing, it was encouraging to see someone that had both status as well as stature who came with a heart to be a blessing, came with a heart to serve. It was unusual and people took note of it. I want you to know that when we study the Gospel of Mark, we're studying of the life of Jesus Christ. And if anyone could have demanded to have been served, it would have been Jesus Christ. But he wasn't just a sovereign, he was a servant. He was the king that came to serve. He came not seeking to be ministered unto, but to minister, to reach out, to be a blessing to others. To establish the deity of Christ, Mark begins his testimony by telling of the introduction of, of Christ's ministry. By this time, Jesus was about 30 years of age. 
He traveled south from his hometown, a relatively obscure town, not even mentioned once in in the Old Testament, a town called Nazareth, and, and he traveled about 30 miles south to an area just east of Jerusalem, perhaps near Jericho, on the Jordan River, where John the Baptist was baptizing. And John allows the occasion surrounding this event to begin to introduce Jesus to us and to the world at that time. A series of events began that, that put Jesus into a place of spotlight in that day, a place that he had avoided to that point. We're going to be encouraged as we get into this study. And if you're able today, I'd like to invite you to join me in standing as we look to the Word of God. And we'll stand and read together. And as I read aloud, I hope that you'll follow along. We're going to look to Mark chapter 1. Our study last week finished in verse 8, so this week we begin in verse 9. And the Bible says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. I'm going to read on, but I think if I were to choose a bird to represent God the Spirit, I'd have gone for like an eagle or something with, with talons, you know, something fierce, maybe a hawk or something. And, and yet the Bible says that the, the Spirit was, was uh, represented by a dove. Harmless as a dove, we say sometimes. We thank the Lord for the work of God the Spirit. Verse 11 says, And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. By the way, as we see verses 9, 10, and 11, you'll see God the Son in 9, you'll see the Spirit in 10, and God the Father in verse 11, the 3 and 1. And so we're grateful for the testimony of the Trinity. The question's been asked, what was the greatest day in the life of Jesus Christ? I don't know for a certainty. It may have been this day. For this was the day when his father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And uh, every child longs for the acceptance, the approval, and the affection of their father. And Jesus here is hearing from his father, this is my son, I love him. Man, I'm pleased in him. It had to have been a great moment in the life of Christ. The Bible goes on in verse 12. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. So the spirit here is driving Jesus, God the Son, into the wilderness. And when the Bible uses that word driveth, that's an aggressive term. In fact, that word is used in the New Testament only to refer to driving out evil spirits. It was an aggressive term, and that's what the Bible says God the Spirit did to God the Son. Drove him out of that area into the wilderness. Verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast. And the angels ministered unto him. Now after that... John was put in prison. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the kingdom of God and, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now I want you to notice in the midst of verse 14, the Bible tells us this. Jesus came. Aren't you glad he came? It changed everything. I want you to go back near the midst of verse 9 with me, please. Our text today, in essence, concludes and begins the same way. In verse 9, we read these words, Jesus came. Now, I want us to consider together today what took place when Jesus came. And I think there's something for us in this. Our Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Uh, thank you for the work you've done on this property already today, and yet we need you now. So please work in our hearts. Draw us close to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. 
Our text begins in verse 9 by saying, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came. Those days were amazing days. Those days were days in which God worked in a supernatural way to cultivate the landscape of humanity so that it would be the, the perfect moment for Christ to begin His earthly ministry. It was a day in which the forerunner to Christ, John the Baptist, had accomplished his work of preparation, and it was now time for the sovereign servant to be introduced to the world. Before his work could begin in earnest, we find a series of events in this passage that we read today that were used of God to, uh, to elevate and to prepare Jesus Christ for his ministry, and, and we're considering today the time when Jesus came. As we consider this time today, we're going to begin, if you'd like to use your outline prepared for you, we're going to begin by seeing his identification, his identification. Now, it was an amazing scene. The crowds were there at the river. John was baptizing in great number. John's message was resonating with people who came to understand their sin and their guilt before God. John baptized all who repented, acknowledged their guilt, and sought forgiveness of sins. That was the emphasis of John the Baptist's ministry. He, he granted baptism as a sign of the cleansing of God only to those who genuinely acknowledged their need before God by confessing their sins. And there were thousands who did so. Thousands came to the riverside. Thousands listened to the message of John the Baptist. Thousands acknowledged their sin and their guilt and were baptized. And then Jesus comes. And Jesus presents himself to John the Baptist for baptism. And the Bible tells us that in response to that, John the Baptist says, Uh-uh, I'm not baptizing you. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of Matthew 3 and verse 14 that John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? So John the Baptist looks at Jesus Christ. We learned last week they were cousins and says, basically, I've observed your life for a long time. I haven't seen anything wrong that you've done. I see no need for you to repent. If anybody needs to baptize anybody, you need to baptize me. Yet Jesus came to John and expressed a desire to be baptized. I think it's saying something when a family member can say to another family member, I don't see anything wrong with you at all. Uh, I think most families, our family members, they're pretty perceptive. It's, it's hard to be a phony at home. And I, I think if you wanted to get the real scoop on somebody, you'd go to their family and, and the family members could probably shed some light on things that maybe you weren't aware of. Yet it was a family member that said of Jesus, I haven't seen anything wrong in your life. I came home late the other night and Julie said, where, where have you been? My daughter, Julie. I said, well, I was helping someone going through a hard time, honey. And she said, well, what were you doing? I said, well, I was counseling counseling and she said what do they want your counsel for you know and I thought I shoot I don't know I, I didn't ask to give it to him you know and and I was just kind of sitting there thinking you know out of the mouths of babes and and uh, what do they want your counsel for I was, I was trying to come up with something on that one and and Jessica chimed in she said Julie they don't they don't care what dad has to say he tells them what it is God had to say but you know either way both of them are clear nobody's interested in what you have to say dad okay and, and uh, you know children have a way of really helping us out and, and I think family members have some insight and and yet we see that John had much confidence in the life of Jesus Christ. After Jesus was baptized, the Bible says the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. It was the Spirit's arrival upon the life and ministry 
of Jesus Christ to let John the Baptist know who he was. When Jesus came to present himself for baptism, John knew Jesus. He knew Jesus as a family member. He did not know Jesus was God the Son. But when Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended on him in the likeness of a dove, and then John knew who Jesus really was. The Bible in John 1, verses 32 and 33, gives a testimony of this occasion. The Bible says, And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. Now we have to wonder, why did Jesus get baptized? That's a reasonable question. If he was perfect, if he was sinless, if he indeed was God the Son, why would he have a need for baptism? And Jesus answers that question for us. In in Matthew 3 and verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So John the Baptist says, I'm not baptizing you. And Jesus says in response, You need to baptize me right now because I need to fulfill the law, the righteousness of the law. Jesus was was fulfilling that portion of the law. He was identifying with each of us. I want you to consider this. When Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary and, and literally gave his life as a payment for our sins, he was there in our place. He was representing us. And when Jesus stood in the waters of the muddy Jordan River that day, he was not there for his own need. He was there to identify with the ministry of John the Baptist and identify with humanity that shares a common problem. We call it sin. And to identify with his father as his father responded, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And as the water crossed his body that day, giving a picture of the cross upon which he would be crucified, and as he went beneath the water that day as a picture of the burial that he one day would have, he came up again out of the water. And and all of this was a testimony of identification by Jesus Christ. I remember attending a football game years ago at the University of Tennessee. Now, there are sports fans, of which I am one. I've been grieving deeply this week. The Lakers are in a 3-0 hold of the Mavericks. Please pray. Join me in prayer, okay? Earnest prayer, fervent prayer. Uh, It looks hopeless, but uh, at any rate, uh, I am a sports fan. But those sports fans in Tennessee, they're just a little different, okay? I've got to be careful. I still have some friends down there, and I'd like to keep them. Tennessee's a good place. They have cracker barrels there. But uh, the sports fans in Tennessee, they're just, they're a little kooky. I mean, it's, it's like a little too important to them, if you know what I mean. They find their self-worth wrapped up in how the Vols have, have done in football, you know. They love it. Now, I went to a football game with a friend of mine, and we went into Neyland Stadium in Knoxville, Tennessee. Over 100,000 people here to, to worship at this football game, okay? And uh, we were the only two people there that I saw sporting the colors of their opponents that day. They were playing UCLA. I don't care much about UCLA. I just thought it'd be fun to go in the middle of 100,000 people wearing the opponent's colors, you know. But I soon discovered that wasn't fun. (laughs) Apparently, I had 100,000 enemies I had yet to meet. I was identifying with the opponent, and, and, and as I did that, I discovered that 
other people really weren't all that happy to see me. And yes, UCLA did get trounced that day. It was kind of an uncomfortable experience. And, and uh, we kind of, uh, you know, as, as they say, tucked the tail, uh, you know, like a dog running off. We kind of quietly and meekly made our way out of there. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ, he came into uh, the opponent's arena, so to speak, and he identified with, with God the Father, and he identified with the last prophet, John the Baptist, and he identified with us. He, the Bible says, counted it all joy. Let me ask you, with whom do you identify? With whom do you identify? Are, are you like Peter who was warming his hand at the, at the enemy's fire? Of that occasion, the Bible says this in Luke 22. A certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, Hey, this man was also with him, with Jesus. He denied, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And about the space of one hour, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, with Jesus. He's a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. He said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Here's Peter denying any association with Christ, not wanting to be identified with Christ. Are, are you like Peter or are you like Peter a short time later? As we read of him in Acts 4, when the Bible says in Acts 4 and verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. In that occasion, we see Peter just boldly living his faith in Christ and people looked at him and, and they accurately assessed him to be unlearned and ignorant in the world's training. But they also marveled. They just couldn't believe it because he just had, so to speak, Jesus all over him. He had so identified with Jesus Christ that when people saw him, they could see the Lord in him. As we move on in our study, we see not only the identification, but the preparation. In verse 12, we learn that immediately the Spirit drove Jesus Christ into the wilderness. There was a heavenly compulsion to leave the river and make his way to the seclusion of the wilderness. Now, the, the, the terminology here does not suggest that Jesus didn't want to go or wouldn't have gone or was afraid to go. But, but Mark here, in using the strong terminology that he was driven, is, is showing the intensity of the experience. There was no time to bask in the glory of his baptism in Jordan. He couldn't stand there and say, what a great day this is. Did you hear my father just say he loves me? Did you hear him say he's, he's pleased with me? There was no time to bask in the glory of that moment for immediately he was driven of the Spirit and he was driven from the river into the wilderness. Now the wilderness is a place that God often uses to prepare and to prove and to provide training for his people. You will have to go through a wilderness time in your life if you want to get anything significant done for the Lord. And we could go through the pages of God's Word and find example after example, but for example, Moses. 40 years he spent in the backside of the desert, and really that was 40 years where God taught him and trained him and put the experiences into his life that he would later need to lead the people of God. I think of the Apostle Paul we're studying on Sunday nights. 
He, after his conversion there in Damascus, just went a short distance to the east into the deserts of Arabia. And for a span of about three years, he, he spent time in that area learning of God and, and, and learning what it was that God wanted him to do. You see, desert times, wilderness times are essential in all of our lives. God uses that seclusion to draw us close to himself and to teach us and train us. We often call this time in the life of Jesus Christ his temptation. And that it was. We read in Matthew 4 and verse 3, And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. I, I like the way the Bible there cuts to the chase and introduced Satan as the tempter. And that's why this was the time of temptation in the life of Christ, because he's in the wilderness. Forty days and forty nights, he's fasting. And the tempter comes. The tempter came to Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that we don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This is what the Bible says. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now I want you to gather this, and here's where we're going to have to really work together. Jesus Christ was tempted in all points. You can never honestly go into the presence of God and say, God, you just can't understand what I'm going through. God, you don't know, know what it is to, to have the things that are pulling in my life, that are pulling in my life. You don't know what temptation is all about. Jesus was tempted in all points. All points. We need to understand this. All points. That's what the Bible says. Now, it's interesting that the Bible emphasizes that because we find a great parallel between the temptation of Jesus Christ in the barren wilderness to the temptation of Adam in the lush garden of Eden. There's a connection, there's a parallel, there's a likeness. We think of Adam in the garden of Eden. and We know it didn't go so well for him there. In fact, the Bible in Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, that one man was our great-grandfather, Adam, and Eve his wife. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, friends, let me tell you something. Every one of us, by virtue of the fact we're human beings, and we've been born, thank God for mothers, we've been born, but we've been born from a corrupt bloodline. Our great-great-great-grandparents that we all share in common, Adam and Eve, they sinned in the Garden of Eden. And for that reason, we are born sinners. And when you get right down to it, it's not just our sin that God, a holy God, has a problem with. It's the fact that we are sinners by nature. It's what we are as well as what we do. We don't have a class in the nursery today training the babies how to throw a fit and how to be crabby and ornery and, and how to fight over toys because we all just arrive on this planet just, just bent, just tweaked. We're depraved. We're fallen. Why? Because Adam and Eve in the garden, we're tempted on these points and they fell. And because they fell, we today are born as sinners. Adam was tempted through these points. The lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or perhaps we could say it this way. He, he was tempted with pleasure, with position, uh, possessions, and with position. Now listen to the tactics the devil used when he came to Adam in the garden. By the way, these are the same tactics he uses on me. 
They're the same tactics he's going to use on you. The devil's really good with the tools he has, but he hasn't gotten a new tool in thousands of years. So what did the devil do in the life of Adam? Listen to these words, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more subtle, tricky, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, so we have the devil now talking to Eve, yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now I'm going to read on. Let me tell you what that was, a lie. God never said that. The devil's a liar. Jesus said he's the father of lies. So he said to Eve, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. By the way, that also was inaccurate, a lie. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. Eve was exaggerating there. People have been adding to the laws of God for a long, long time. Okay. So they go on. The serpent says unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Listen, the words there, good for food, that speaks of the lust of the flesh. The words there, pleasant to the eyes, that speaks of the lust of the eyes. The words the, the Bible says, it will make one wise, that speaks of the pride of life. Those are the points of temptation. Now we know through Matthew's accounting of the temptation of Christ, those were the same areas in which Jesus Christ was tempted. Those same areas. But he wasn't in a beautiful garden. He didn't have the blessing of companionship. He wasn't in a, a beautiful setting. He was in a, a rough setting. He was isolated. He was physically fatigued. He was, he was hungry. And, and the Bible gives us the accounting of the temptation of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 4, verses 3 and 4, the tempter came to him and said, If thou be, he always asks these questions, the devil, you know. If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. You see, the devil there appealed to the lust of the flesh. Jesus, you haven't eaten in a while. You've got to be hungry. And if you're God, just turn those rocks into bread. The lust of the flesh. The devil goes on, verses 5 through 7 in Matthew 4. The devil take them up to the holy city and set them on a pinnacle of the temple. And saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It's written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In this instance, the devil appealed to the lust of the eyes. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus looking down, seeing people worshiping. The devil says, in essence, just jump off. If you're God, the angels won't let you dash your foot. They'll, they'll catch you and gently deliver you to the ground. And when everybody sees that, all that you're seeing there will be yours. They'll receive you as their king. And so we see it was a lust of the eyes, all Jesus was seeing from the vantage point of the pinnacle. Matthew 4, 8 through 10. Again, the devil taketh them up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth them all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt, wilt fall down and worship me. 
Then said Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, it's written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That temptation was aimed at the pride of life or the desire to have power. Now, in each case, Jesus found his defense in Scripture. Jesus quoted Scripture to the devil. Now, friends, listen, if God the Son, who had the power of the Spirit dwelling on him, if he needed to use the power of Scripture to withstand in the occasion, a season of temptation, I would say we needed even more than him, all right? We, we need to make sure that it's the Word of God that's dwelling in us so when these occasions of temptation come, we'll have the Spirit from which to draw. In each case, Jesus quoted Scripture. He used the Bible. Now, Adam was defeated in the garden, and with his defeat, mankind fell. Adam fell in the garden. Jesus, he passed the test, all points, yet without sin. Now, I want you to see that Jesus is oftentimes a picture of the second Adam. The second Adam. Adam went through the garden tempting. He failed. Jesus, the second Adam, the picture, he succeeded. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and 45, And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. You see, in Adam, we find physical life. He's our, our great, great, great grandfather, and, and we understand that. But, but because we're born in Adam, we're destined to sin and the consequences thereof. But in Christ, we can be quickened or made alive. In Adam, we, we find our physical life through our lineage tracing back to him. But in Jesus, we find the capacity and the wherewithal to have a spiritual life. You see, everything we lost in Adam, we gained back and then in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, the points through which the devil work reveals the tactics he's going to use in our lives. He will appeal to the lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes and the pride of life. He will appeal to, to pleasure and possessions and position. But when we consider that we have a Savior who through the power of the Spirit and the power of Scriptures defeated the devil, we find the way that we too can see a growing measure of victory in our own lives. I love the way the Bible just throws in, in the end of verse 13, that the angels ministered unto him, and they'll minister to us as well. As we continue in our study today, the final thought we'll consider is the declaration. The declaration. In verse 14, John the Baptist has been in prison. That's another story I'd love to get into, but uh, Mark doesn't spend much time talking about that. But John the Baptist is placed in prison, and in response to the timing of this all, we come to understand that Jesus is coming into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now again, Galilee, that's that northernmost region where Jesus was raised, and he's going back to more familiar territory. And there the Spirit gave specific direction as well as, as the powers needed for the work. And so Jesus begins his preaching ministry. Jesus, in quoting the Old Testament, says in Luke 4 and verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, that really would have served as a purpose statement for Jesus Christ. He said, I've come to bring deliverance to captives. I want to deliver these people that, that are held as captives. And deliverance is found in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom of God. 
The essence of the message he preached in verse 15 was this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And here it is. Repent ye and believe the gospel. The way to find deliverance, spiritually speaking, is to repent ye and believe the gospel. John the Baptist preached, repent and believe. Jesus preached, repent and believe. The Apostle Paul preached, repent and believe. And today I preach, repent and believe. Now, repentance alone is inadequate. If all we do is see the horror of our sin, all we have then is guilt. We'd only be half where we need to be. So the message was this. Repent, which means to have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. And believe. Two sides of the same coin. If I'm living my life, lust of the flesh. If it feels good, do it is the mantra of the world. Lust of the eyes, it looks good to me. Pride of life, man, if I get one more stripe or this, this uh, income category or I get uh, 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 more promotion, people are really going to think I'm just all that and then some and, and that becomes a motivation for life. If I'm pursuing the points and I come to understand the vanity of it all and see the sinfulness in my life that is there, if I repent and believe, I'm turning to Christ away from self. It's a great thought. The entire work is a testimony to the goodness of God and the grace of God. You see, Romans 2, 4 says this, Despise thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. It's the goodness of God. You see, we wouldn't have known of our need were it not for God. The Holy Spirit of God is the prime mover. He's the one that lets us know, look, you've got a problem on your hands here. We wouldn't have known of the solution were it not for God. God the Spirit making it known and, 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 and the word is, is that from which faith comes and the preacher or a helper giving us the truth. You see, if you're here today and you're really a believer, there's not one believer that can give a testimony and say, man, let me tell you how I got saved. I was awesome. You should have seen what I did. It was great, man. I just was walking along and one day it dawned on me uh, what, what I needed to do and, and then I took care of it all myself. No, if you're a believer today, your life is a living testimony that God is a God of love, that God doesn't leave us in a state of depravity and fallenness that we're born into because of the first Adam, but because of Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second Adam. He came and he conquered sin, death, the grave, sin. He has provided for us the assurance of a relationship with God that lasts forever, a life that just makes sense. How, how many people today are living a life that makes no sense? If it feels good, do it, mantra, the lust of the flesh. Man, it, it doesn't fulfill the looks good to me lifestyle, letting our eyes lead us around, the, the pride of life. Actually, as though if we were to, to get one more stripe or in, a, in some type of a higher income bracket, that that would mean we have more value as a human being. We're just biding time until the inevitable death rolls around for us all. But when you know God, and there's an eternal life through faith in Him, that adds so much more meaning to this life. And it, 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 it adds a sense that eludes those that don't know God. I'm just saying today, God's good. He's really, really good. Now, as clear as Christ's message appears there, it was still misunderstood by some. 
because many in that day were looking for a political revolutionary. They wanted to overthrow Rome, and I, I would have wanted them overthrown if I were living there as well. But they were hoping that the Messiah would come and would overthrow Rome and, and that the autonomy would be given back to the Jewish people and, and they could reestablish themselves. And, and that, that wasn't at all the way it worked. Jesus didn't bring a political revolution. He brought a spiritual revolution that overthrows sin and the consequence thereof through faith. The world thought it would be a physical kingdom, but Jesus brought a spiritual kingdom. In fact, in Romans 14, 17, the Bible says that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not physical stuff, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. We started reading this passage today and we read that Jesus came. And as we got near the end of this passage today, we read the words, Jesus came. John the Baptist prepared the way. Jesus, the servant king, arrived and he brought victory over sin, death, the grave, and hell. He brings power over temptation and a purpose to our lives. He will rule and reign from the throne room of our hearts if we'll repent ye and believe the gospel. You know what I love about quoting Jesus? You can't really get mad at the pastor. I did not write it. I just recite it. So today I ask, have you repented and believed the gospel? And I would say that if there is a fraction of 1% of doubt, can I just beg you today? Take care of that fraction of 1% of doubt because you don't want to gamble with your eternity. Do you know for sure 